Okay, so welcome back uh, to the Branded Podcast. So this week's guest is particularly fascinating for me, uh, Chris Hutchins of Grove. Now, Grove is kind of a very novel and 21st century take on financial planning and financial advisors. Uh, And you're going to discover a dirty little secret about financial advisors when you listen to the episode. So hopefully um, you'll find that uh, particularly uh, informative. Um, But so the reason why I am really fascinated uh, and really was incredibly optimistic and, and about the you know doing this episode was because I've always been interested in in finance um and I've always been interested in sort of the products that are built upon the phenomena of money which is like super interesting and I think it's going to be a theme moving forward I think I'm going to really try and focus more on these um these type of, types of brands and types of products uh, because they're in large part um, products that touch all of our lives and I think it is going to be incredibly um, informative for all of us listening and learning um, to hear from these people who are building uh, these, uh, these, these products that really touch every part of our life and are so fundamental to how we live. So that was a super long intro and probably not necessary, but um, without further ado, here is myself and Chris Hutchins of Grove um, talking about what it takes to build uh, a great financial brand in the 21st century. Enjoy. Hi, Chris. Uh, welcome to the show. Hey, great. Great to have, great being here. Yeah, so uh, it's a pleasure to have you because, you know, um, in my like personal experience, you know, dealing with uh, financial institutions and advisors and different brands that have to do with finance, it's been kind of a notoriously terrible um, experience. And, you know, we have these kind of new wave of um, um, tech-enabled uh, finance uh, brands and products. Um, so I'm really keen to hear, you know, how you think about building a great um, financial services company, you know, for that serves the 21st century uh, customer. So my, my question for you, my first question for you is tell me about the moment you knew uh, that you, that you needed to uh, start growth. Yeah, it's a, it's a funny question because if you ask people that are very close to me, they'll tell you that they, they kind of knew I would start this company for my whole life. Um, But if you ask me, you'll get a different answer which is, you know, it kind of happened 2000, let's say 15. I was trying to think on what I wanted to work on next. I'd been at Google since my previous company was acquired by them um, for about four years. And I was talking to a lot of people and basically everyone I knew uh, was not confident about their financial situation, didn't know exactly what they should be doing and also didn't feel like there was a good solution. And at that moment, I was like, this is what I'm going to do next. And I didn't know exactly what shape it would take or what, you know, what the product would look like. But I kind of realized that there's this problem that I've cared about my entire life that other people have at a kind of really significant level um, that technology could solve. And, you know, it's kind of at that point that it was like, this is this is my calling. Hmm. So um, how, how does Grove work for people that don't know? And maybe you could just walk me through like what what is it that grow sort of does differently 
than uh, you know traditional financial services and and um, maybe how does it you know uh, attain competitive advantage for lack of a better better phrase? Yeah. So I think if you if you look at the world of financial services today, um, the way most people end up getting financial advice, uh, assuming they don't do it themselves, is either kind of maybe in one of three categories. There's uh, you know a handful of financial advisors that don't charge a lot of money. Um, they you know very often make their money in commissions from selling life insurance or putting your investments into really high fee mutual funds. Um, and I and kind of advise regularly people to stay away from that group of investment advisors. If you look at the market, um, nine and 10 investment advisors or financial advisors are brokers. In the broker capacity, they have no legal obligation to act in your best interest. Um, separate from that, there's kind of the camp of private wealth managers, which typically have a 500,000 million all the way up to some firms have $20 million minimums uh, that you can work with them. Uh, so, you know, pretty inaccessible to the average person, but, you know, many, you know, looking out for your best interest, but charge really high fees. So it's usually somewhere around 1% of the assets they manage. So if you meet their million dollar minimum, you're going to be spending $10,000 a year. Uh, and then there's a, a kind of smaller group of certified financial planners or hourly financial planners. And, you know, they, they do a similar, you know, prop product to what we do, except it's a little bit more in person, a little bit more handholding, um, and, and kind of also bound with this fiduciary obligation act in your best interest. So we took the best of the financial planning world, which was always put your customer's interest first. Uh, but we thought we could build technology to make a lot of the pieces of the process much more efficient. So with us, when a client signs up, they fill out a profile online, they sync their accounts online. So we end up learning more about their financial situation and their bank accounts and their 401k than many times they even knew, uh, you know, all while not having access to make any, any changes. So it's read access only. Um, and then they do a call uh, with one of our certified financial planners where we talk about their goals and what's going on in their life and what's important to them. And from there, we you know, put together a personalized actionable financial plan. And when we deliver that plan, um, it's something that will help them understand what they need to be doing to be on track for their various life goals. Uh, so you could kind of think of Grove like a personal trainer for your money. We kind of assess where you are today and we help you create a plan to achieve your goals and be confident about money. Uh, and the technology is what makes the advisors efficient, which is what lets us charge you know, a fraction of the price of what a lot of traditional advisors uh, charge. And, you know, we don't have in-person meetings. You don't need to fill out paper with a pen. You don't need to print out PDFs of your bank statements and mail them to us. Um, there's a lot of things, you know, we don't deliver advice in the form of a thousand page document that you hand, you know, hold in your binder. Um, we do it all online and we make it a lot easier to understand. Um, I think that's what makes it more efficient for us to provide financial advice, both in the form of a financial plan, but then on an ongoing basis, you know, we are also here to help people figure out what they need to be doing going forward. As life evolves, making changes, we proactively monitor things, the market, their accounts, um, interest rates, to try to make sure that we always are able to help you be in the best position possible. So, so you touched on something that I find incredibly um, interesting, and I'm sort of like a Charlie Munger uh, fanboy of a little bit. And you, you, you touched on the this idea of incentives and, um, you know, how different incentives uh, sort of uh, catalyze the product offerings that these different segments have and how that sort of um, positions grow with technology uh, on top. 
uh, in positions grow up in a great um, position. So I was going to ask how does you know the incentives inform the brand and the product decisions, but I think you sort of touched on that. So what I'm curious about is um, how do you uh, since there's technology uh, enabled uh, with Grow. Um, how does that inform the product decisions that you make and how fast you can change the product um, relative to, say, a traditional um, financial advisor or wealth advisor? They're sort of stuck in this brick and mortar um, position. So maybe they can't iterate and change on the product. So how do you bring that kind of tech ethos to this very traditional um, uh, product, so to speak? Yeah. So if you if you talk to most advisors and we've hired you know a few here, They'll tell you that, you know, I imagine in a five-year span, zero of their feedback has been kind of iterated in the in the product standpoint. And from a process standpoint, you know, it might take six to 12 months to change things. Um, and, and that's just maybe like, oh, maybe we do a meeting for 45 minutes instead of an hour. The, the industry is very slow moving and the technology they use is, is even slower. So, you know, we're able to change the way advisors operate and change the way our product works on a you know weekly basis if we need to. If we if we determined that something would save people time, we could spend all our energy on it and, and kind of make it happen as quickly as necessary. So uh, I think we actually move really quickly. And those product decisions are kind of informed by both what what is best for the, the client and, and what makes us more efficient, which ultimately makes the entire experience best for the client as well. So uh, you know, it's a core value of ours that we have a fiduciary obligation to act in our client's best interest. It's something that we hire for. It's something that we would fire for. Uh, and I think it's something that, you know, is so core to us that, you know, it almost in some ways doesn't influence the product because it is the product. You know, it's not, it doesn't influence it because it's just a, a prerequisite. It's not even, uh, you know, a side, a side note. And do you uh, connect with other services? Like, so there's obviously a bunch of other um, fintech uh, products in the, in the market at the moment that do completely different things. Um, so, for example, does uh, Grove say connect with like Acorns or something like that, or like Wealthfront, um, or or something along those lines? Is is that is that a feature? Just out of yeah, when it, when clients sign up, we allow people to connect their account to somewhere in the neighborhood of about eighteen thousand different financial institutions that include you know things like you've mentioned. Um, so uh, we, we can connect other accounts and we can build a plan around them. We find oftentimes that our clients are coming to us because they've maybe tried an automated investing or robo-investing platform uh, and realized right. that the thing that's really missing from their financial life is a human advisor who can help them figure out what makes sense. Uh, they might have jumped into investing without the you know forethought of, should that money really be invested or should I keep that money somewhere more liquid to buy a house in the future? Should I pay down my student loans? Mm -hmm should I rather be maxing out my 401k or opening up an IRA or a 529? And so we, we actually see people coming to us and, you know, while they have accounts at other services that they want us to know about while we're making their plan, uh, very often they end up with us, uh, you know, using our product uh, instead of those by the end of the relationship. Hmm, that's so interesting. Um, hmm, that's so interesting because, uh, you know, so there's this idea of these Benjamin Button um, companies, you know, the, the ones that sort of 
get better with time or get like younger as they as they age, which I think is super interesting. And um, when I apply that idea to like finance and to perhaps personal finance, I think it's it's super interesting. And I I don't really have a question per se, but I would just love to get your take on it, like um, a Spotify type of finance experience or something like that, where like you know it's just getting better and knowing you better uh, as you use the product more. Um, and I'm curious about like some of the patterns maybe, or some of the interesting things that have come up and, and that you've kind of inferred about um, people, people's, you know, finance habits or, or, or things along those lines that maybe were unexpected um, that you don't think uh, traditional, you know, sort of brick and mortar financial uh, advisors maybe could see without that data. Yeah, I think that, you know, if a traditional advisor doesn't actually learn anything about you, uh, unless you share information. So, you know, we have access to, are you spending or saving in line with what we set up as a goal? So if the goal was to, you know, set your 401k contribution and max it out by, you know, July, we, we, we see what's going on and we know if it's happening. So we know that you know, maybe you need more encouragement than the average person, or maybe the encouragement should be focused on saving instead of spending or vice versa, because we're watching what happens and we know, you know, how you operate and how we could evolve. So I think we definitely take a look at what's going on with our clients and, and try to do the best we can to improve that situation um, based on the data that we have from their accounts, based on how we've seen them engage, the, the to-dos product we have as part of the plan um, is something you can interact with. So we see if clients are actually taking action or not. So we know, oh, you're not taking action. Maybe we should think about uh, alternatives to help you take action easier or maybe more bite-sized things. And we can evolve not only the planning process for that client, but for everyone. Hmm. That's really cool. Um, so I have this quote here. Um, and that says 70% of investors want to align their investment, investments with their values. Um, and it's from like this Morgan Stanley uh, forward-looking research report. And, you know, on the show with people who have these different brands and, and are influencing brands and things along those, those lines, we often talk about consumer behavior and, and value shifts in values, like in the culture. And um, I'm curious as to... Uh, how do you think this is influencing how people think about their money and what do you like, what have you learned and what has been most surprising with the kind of shift in, in values that um, you see, you know, you hear people talk about uh, millennials and all these things all the time, but maybe it's not just the age cohort, but it's a, a actual, actual shift in, in values and, and, and uh, underlying motivations perhaps. Yeah. I'm, I, this is an, uh, an interesting one for me because I think, there's what people say and what people do. And, you know, this is not a real trade-off, but uh, if you think about it in the hypothetical, you give someone the option of you know, something that is in line with their values or something that makes them more money. And, you know, of course, everyone would say, I'd like to invest alongside my values, but, you know, if that prevents them from being diversified or limits their returns, you know, the answer might be different than, uh, you know, what they had said before. So I'm not sure, you know, it's, it's one of those like survey questions where if you ask someone like, would you like to have more money? The answer is yes, but, you know, at what expense? Um, and so I, I do genuinely think, though, that people want to work with services and brands that they trust 
uh, more than services and brands that you know offer necessarily the best deal. Um, that's very clear to me. You know, you could go to people go to SoulCycle even though it's more expensive than other spin classes because that experience and then the ethos of the company really resonates with them. So I think it's something that's changing. I think it's something that older companies aren't realizing like they should um, because it certainly affects. Um, you know, the end user and the experience more than uh, a lot of other people would imagine. And and I've definitely seen it ma- matter here. And I think if you look at our clients, the reason why they uh, care about what we do and love, you know, our product and service in the way they do is that, you know, we c- put their interests first and it's just like core to who we are. And I don't think that's always the case with every other company. And I think it's, uh, it's proved to be quite valuable uh, in the way we speak with people. So, so in that to me is like this idea of trust um, as you sort of alluded to and I'm curious as to what are the other industries that you uh, and the team at Grove look to for perhaps inspiration when you're thinking about the product and you're thinking about the experience or maybe that you thought about when building uh, kind of the first um, first iterations or first uh you know, first versions of uh, the products. Where did you look to for inspiration, and and um, you know, how much has came from Wall Street and traditional finance? How much came from tech, or maybe some completely orthogonal industry? Um, I'm just curious of how you how you how you thought about that and continue to think about that. Yeah, I mean, the entire idea of a beautiful product experience, you know, has certainly not come from Wall Street, right? I look at you know, products I engage and interact with on a daily basis, um, you know, and, and they've been much more influential. So the, the kind of design driven products that have launched in Silicon Valley in the last five years, uh, certainly influence, uh, my process and, and product building more than, you know, anything I've ever seen in wall street. If anything, it's like, if what we're doing in any way feels like what came out of wall street, like we know we're doing it wrong. Um, so that that's definitely one thing I think about. I think about building uh, advisor-facing tools that are as seamless and easy to use as, you know, kind of tools that we all see come out of, you know, consumer companies or even enterprise companies like Slack. Uh, like the idea that you could delight a, you know, professional services business customer in a way that, you know, you strive to from you know, experiences that Apple's been creating and all, all that kind of stuff. So I definitely have been inspired by, you know, design driven products in the last five years and, and use that in none of what comes through Wall Street. <laughs> what are the best in class um, design driven products in your uh, opinion? And, and kind of what have you uh, maybe um, learned from them? Across any industry or, uh, you know, well, yeah, me, I, and, and, I could go really, I could go really far in this. So, uh, give me a little scope. Um, I'm more concerned with like the people that are creating what you consider to be, you know, one of a kind, best in class, masterful products. So, sort of your masters of of product. Um, yeah. So, I mean, if you get there, what have you learned? I mean, look at Nest, look at Apple, look at Tesla, look at uh, Airbnb, and just like the idea that each step along the way, uh, you're trying to think on how you make the experience better. Um, I think that's the 
amazing thing. Airbnb is such a great example because, you know, I've, you know, you never see hotels care about things beyond the experience directly related, but now Airbnb has this whole idea of how do I make sure that while you're in town, uh, you know, you have the best experience and you eat the best food and you see the most interesting things and you meet the most amazing people. And like, they're just, they don't think of the, the scope of what they do as just how do I make sure that you get a hotel or an alternative in the easiest way? It's the whole thing. Um, and, you know, if you look back to the first time, you know, you've ever used an iPhone. Uh, I remember when I got my first Mac, it was just like, oh, wow, like somebody actually thought about how to make the whole experience amazing. And if you've happened to be been inside of a Tesla, you're like, oh my gosh, like I just assumed that cars wouldn't be, you know, this thought through and, and I'm wrong. They are, and, and they can be an incredible experience. So, um, you know, any of those companies are, are, you know, leaders in that. I'm not unique in saying that, oh, you know, Apple's, you know, really great at design. Like, you know, I'm, I'm certainly not the only person that's ever said that, uh, but it's definitely, uh, you know, true. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Um, and the this is sort of maybe like beating on the point of it, but I'm I'm just gonna ask you anyway. Um, uh, like you know, a lot of people will say, "Oh, I want to do Airbnb for this," or "I want to be you know have Apple design for that." And perhaps that's maybe not looking at the deepest like first principles of it. Um, so when you think about like the first principles of those companies, is it just to be clear? Is it like the the thoughtfulness of each aspect of the experience is that what you sort of take out of it i think what i take out of it is you know somewhat straightforward it's you just have to care about your users like that that's just fundamentally it apple spends money to make the products and the hardware and software that they build better uh, because they think that it you know it would make the consumer experience better and that's driven to an immense amount of loyalty and there are companies that decide, okay, well, we can make this thing cheaper. And in the short term, you know, that makes the product more competitive. In the long term, people find another product they like and don't come and buy their third, fourth, or fifth thing here. So I just think that people who genuinely care about their, you know, users and making sure they have an incredible experience, uh, you know, win in this space. And that's something I'm focused on. Yeah, absolutely, one hundred percent. So, so something that that um, for me, as well as other people that I've spoken to, is this idea of transparency in finance and in financial products and things that have to do with um, value. And I think sort of maybe this is coming to the forefront in sort of the zeitgeist. Uh, um, with maybe like Facebook data and things like that as people are discovering like, wow, my Facebook data is very valuable and now I want it to be transparent. So uh, what is the role of transparency in, in finance and financial um, decisions? And, and how do you think about that uh, at Grok? Yeah, so when I think about transparency, I think it's kind of hand in hand with building trust. So we're gonna, we're as a company asking people to trust us with their money and if we can't be transparent about what we do how we operate and everything you know that's going on like we just lose the ability to to gain our clients trust so if you're not transparent 
then people just wonder like, where's the money going? Where's the money coming from? How are people doing things with my data? And so, you know, we've, we've done everything we can to try to make sure that when people ask questions, uh, when we can talk about how we operate, we're just being open and transparent about how we operate as a business, because I think that's what consumers demand. And I want to make sure that that's what, uh, you know, we do. Now, along so so there's another sort of buzzword that I'm going to ask you about, but I think it's really relevant is this idea of uh, engagement. And you know, when you when you think about like consumer products and things like that, obviously engagement and sort of this this habit loop idea is is very um, important. But um, I think engagement is also important in financial technology and perhaps like tethered to like education um, of the users, maybe, I don't know. Um, but again, I, I'm curious as how you think about this idea of engagement within um, financial technology and sort of, mm, how, how, yeah, how do you think about it and how are you building the product along those lines, if you are? Yeah, actually, maybe quite differently than the average person would. So I think engagement is interesting. Um, but if I imagine a dream financial experience, it's one where you know someone trusts the company they're working with so much that they don't have to feel like they are you know monitoring everything every day. Like, wouldn't it be amazing if right. you could put your finances you know in a in a situation where like you just know it works and you don't have to think about it? So I do th actually think there's a world where uh, you know engagement doesn't need to be as high as I guess some people try to make it. And, you know, I would argue that, that that's the case. So I don't think about engagement as, you know, wow, if I could get someone to open up my website every day, that would be amazing. That's not a priority for me, at least, as much as it is important that, um, you know, clients feel you know, very, very comfortable with what we're doing, trust us to make decisions and, and you know, our, our hands off is in some ways great. Now, I want to make sure they're still getting value. Otherwise, you know, there, there's a problem there. But that def definitely doesn't mean they need to be engaged on a daily basis, like a kind of traditional consumer app might be thinking about it. Hmm. That's interesting. Now, how does that sort of uh, inform the product and design, um, not decisions, but I guess like roadmap maybe, obviously maybe there's things we don't want to share, but like, um, it's so it's something that I think a lot of people would maybe, especially that are building tech products, would have to unlearn. Um, you know what I mean? Like, let's build this so people don't have to use it as much, right? Um, so, is there more like of a granular way that you sort of think about that, or you draw a place where you draw inspiration from that? Maybe service-oriented industries or some, something like that. No, I mean, I think it comes back to what we said before is like, what is the best consumer experience? And so yeah, a great product designer is going to spend the time talking to uh, and learning from its users. And and when you talk to users and say, hey, do you want to manage your money and think about it every single second of every single day? Like you very quickly will learn that most people don't want to do that. So, um, right. you know, if that's the case, then let's really think about how we can optimize for what's best for the consumer instead of, you know, what we think might be best based on how we've operated in the past. 100%. Excellent. Um, what have you learned in the last two years that excites you the most? Uh, 
I mean, what have I learned in the last two years? Um, I've learned that no matter how old and slow you think an industry can be, it can be older and slower. Uh, I've learned that, you know, if you are true to your values, clients, uh, the media, future employees, investors kind of latch on to that. And that, you know, there are a few things that, you know, trust and values are, are, are two examples of things that, you know, you have to be unwavering on. And if you, you know, I've watched companies that have kind of creeped a little bit outside of the bounds to see if it could help improve the business and, and it backfires. And uh, so I think it's just stick true to what you care about. And, you know, from a company building standpoint, sometimes that is harder. That means that you're going to, uh, you know, make things more difficult for yourself uh, than they could be. But the long-term payoff and the long-term benefit of that is incredible. And how did you, I don't really like to work how, but like, what was the inspiration maybe, or what was the, what was the desire to uh, touch upon these values that you uh, use to build um, growth and obviously keep this day to inform the day-to-day decisions? Yeah. So say that again. What, how, how did we find them? Right. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, it, it was a, an interesting process of essentially, you know, looking at the team of people that helped build this company and evaluating, you know, who we were as people, uh, how we'd interacted over the last, you know, 12 months that we'd been here, uh, what, what we loved about the way we interacted, what we didn't, what we wanted to improve and what we embraced and kind of going through a team effort process of, you know, figuring that out and, you know, defining it and writing it down and evolving it and, re, you know, coming back and checking in 12 months later and, and being open to things that, you know, we, you know, we call them uh, core values and aspirational values. So there are things that we aspire to do and we check in to see if we've gotten better. And there are things that are just deal breakers. And so if someone shows up and doesn't show respect for their fellow employees, that's a deal breaker for us. It just, it has to be there. And if, someone isn't willing to question the norms, um, you know, of an industry, of a way things are done. You know, we call that value the inquisitor. Like that's a, that's a deal breaker because we, we operate in an industry where, you know, our entire business is going to be built on questioning the way things have been done before. And if someone's not comfortable with, with, with that, that's not necessarily saying they're, they're a bad employee or should, you know, that's just saying, I don't think they're the right fit for us. And there are plenty of companies where that's, you know, something that's totally fine. And so, you know, we've tried to write our values and and evolve our values to a point that, you know, you wouldn't think of them as, you know, the kind of standard, like, oh, you have to be, you know, a good person. It's like, no, like, I would love values to have an equal and opposite good value. And then we just end on one end of the spectrum, but the other end is also okay. And they kind of really embody how we're different and not, you know, the standard value of like, you know, we're, we're hard workers and we're honest and it's like, well, of course, but like what company, you know, likes to advertise that they don't work hard and they lie every day. Like, you know, so um, it's been a process to kind of think about what they are, evolve them and, and kind of continue to, to live up to them. But it's, it's kind of made us who we are. Hmm. What is it that you know about product or brand or finance or personal finance within that sort of realm um, 
that it makes you upset that more people don't know. It's sort of like a secret that. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it's not a secret. I, I've already shared it once on this podcast, but I'll share it again. You know, nine out of 10 financial advisors or people who call themselves a financial advisor in the US, you know, ha- have a capacity that, that they're not solely, um, you know, required to act in your best interest. So you could sit down with someone whose title is financial advisor, and they could tell you that this thing is something you need to do for your future, and it's a great investment. And what, you know, they might know that it's definitely not as good as some alternatives, and they're not legally required to tell you that. Um, it seems crazy to me, um, you know, that, that that's possible. But, you know, many financial advisors, you know, the majority of them are not required to always act in, in your best interest. And I think that's, you know, it feels like a secret because it shocks lots of people. Uh, it's not a secret in that, you know, it's a well-known fact, but it, it doesn't seem to have, you know, spanned all consumers because we, we have to inform people about that regularly. Hmm. Hmm. Now, now thinking about the sort of opposite of that, because, um, you know, I, I think that most people would not, like to hear that obviously it's very important um what brands uh or products inspire you um and why i know we sort of spoke about the experience and and uh you know being really thoughtful about um your users um but it can be any brand any brand that you that you want that uh, inspires you um and why yeah so the the one that i think is relevant today um, you know, because I've, I've been thinking about it recently is Peloton. Um, and Peloton mm. makes a, an in-home cycle, like a bicycle, like a spin bike. And they have an annual, a monthly subscription to a bunch of classes live and on demand. And the bike costs $2,500. It is not a, you know, small purchase. And the thing that is exciting about their brand is that that is a very large amount of dollars for, for the average person to spend. However, um, you know, going to a SoulCycle class, which might be $30, you know, is also a lot of money. Um, and, you know, if you go to, you know, more than 80, 90 classes, it, it might have been a better deal to buy the bicycle at home. Now, different experiences, some people might like one versus the other. But I think what's fascinating about the brand they've built is they've been successfully able to build a brand that people trust and believe in enough to pay an upfront amount of money that ultimately ends up being, you know, a, a difficult number to swallow, but makes financial sense. And they found a way to communicate that. And, you know, a lot of times there are businesses that say, look, it's, it's, you know, solar power is a great example, except I think the payback period is very long, but solar power is one of those things where, you know, it's definitely going to cost you money now, but in the long run, it will save you money. And those are very difficult, you know, behavioral financial decisions for people to make. And Peloton's done a very, you know, great job at, you know, helping people make that decision uh, in this space. And it's, it's kind of inspiring for us because, you know, we charge an annual fee up front and, uh, you know, it's a, a little bit similar, um, but, you know, I think it's actually an incredibly compelling value. It's just communicating that is sometimes difficult and they've done a really good job and they've, you know, been true to who they are and their brand. And, you know, it's pretty amazing. Hmm. You know, uh, you know, I think something that's also interesting about that is this idea that it's like, like, sort of like a, like an investment, right? Like you, you, it's, so you're almost, even if you're on the edge prior to making the investment of the upfront cost, 
now that you've made the upfront cost, you're likely more um, likely to to continue with the the desired behavior. Right? Yeah, I think. Yeah, um, it's. Go ahead. Sorry, sorry. Go ahead. No, no, that's it. Um, so um, I have this last question here uh, before I get into like this kind of um, stream of consciousness, like quick fire uh, section. Um, and it's given the chance to improve your knowledge of brand building or product. Um, who would you share a spaceship with to understand their their approach? So you're going to this place. It has to be one person and one you person. For a long time and you get to one person, only one person. Who did, who is it and, and why? Dead or alive? I mean, I, I get to pick one person to to ride a spaceship with. Uh, to talk about building a brand. Um, I mean, the, I mean, the cliche answer, and I'm a very like analytical person when it comes to things like this. So, you know, since you gave me the out with dead or alive, uh, you know, it, it has to be dead because anyone alive, I feel like I could find a way to meet anyway. So if we're in speaking in the hypothetical, you know, I think the obvious one has to be Steve jobs, which seems so cliche and I don't want to say it, but you know, it, it, when it comes to building a brand and, and turning something around and, and it being unwavering in the way you do it, uh, you know, I would love to have that conversation, obviously on a spaceship alone. So there's no ability for the other person to disappear uh, and, and kind of you, they, they're just forced to engage. So I guess I would have to say that as much as I, I feel like it's the obvious answer. And sort of why and perhaps what, what questions would you want to ask? Uh, thanks. I think that, you know, there are very many difficult things about building a company, um, difficult decisions, difficult employees, and, uh, you know, somewhere deep down inside, you have to find the ability to make a decision that people are telling you you shouldn't make that seems like the wrong decision, but that you know in your heart is the right decision. And that usually comes down to product or brand. And, um, you know, I think unlike many people, uh, you know, Steve Jobs just didn't fail in making the hard decision, you know, time after time to the point that, you know, he was ousted from the company until, you know, they brought him back. And I think that, you know, understanding what it took and the process and the, the you know, the ability and the the way that you're able to harness the ability, you know, the the conviction to do those things is something that, you know, as we grow and as we get bigger and, and you know, as we have more and more shareholders and clients, it's going to be something we face. And, you know, I'm more curious about like just emotionally and psychologically how you make those decisions um, when there's so much going on and so much revolving around it. Um, so, you know, that that's where I'd start. I imagine the conversation would go a thousand different ways about product and hiring and all kinds of stuff, but that's where I'd start. Awesome. Okay, so so uh, I'm gonna say this is like the quick fire stream of consciousness section, and I'm just gonna say a, a, a phrase, and I want to know the first thing or things that come to your to your mind. Sound good? Cool. So when I say finance, you think? I wish there was a word that was not so boring that I could use in all of our marketing than the word finance. <laughs> Okay. Um, um, when 
can I say product? Do you think? It, you know, how you communicate your value to a client uh, or, or a customer who's decided to, to become a client or customer. Financial products or institutions of the past are? So old. So old. True, true, very true. Uh, financial products and institutions today are? Still so old. Like, it's unbelievable. <laughs> True. Uh, now, financial products uh, or institutions in the future need to. You know, the existing ones need to be willing to to make massive sacrifices on their existing business to adopt, you know, transparency and products and revenues that, that you know, align with their customers better. Um, that, that's not a quick fire, but... I think they just need to be willing to make huge sacrifices and changes for for their, you know, survival. Chris, where can people check out Grove and uh, maybe check out yourself as well? And, yeah. So, um, what would you like them to know? Yeah. So, come check us out at hellogrove.com. Uh, you can sign up for an intro session or take our financial checkup. Um, you know, you can find me uh, on Twitter at at Hutchins or chrishutchins.com. Um, yeah, that's all. Awesome. Chris, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. It was very uh, informative. Yeah, this was great. Thanks so much for having me. Okay, so there you have it. That was another great episode. Um, if you're still listening, thank you for listening uh, this far. And we have a bunch of great episodes coming up. I'm sure of it. And hopefully we can keep learning together. Um, and we can keep... Uh, this you know insightful podcast you know going so uh, have an incredible evening or morning wherever you are until until next time